On this episode, what looks like lava flowing down the face of El Capitan, gas, that's gear acquisition syndrome, and a lot of talk about light. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. hosts, Severia Tilden, Jeff Hester, and Jason Fitzpatrick. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Almost There Adventure podcast. Um, today, we have an amazing photographer as our guest, Sapna Reddy. Uh, now, Sapna, I'm kind of excited to, to finally talk to you because I've been following your Instagram for years and your other photo work for years, and, and I've always been like such a huge fan. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Having me, Jason. I'm excited humbled and honored that <laughs> that you guys are including me in this yeah well why don't you uh, why don't you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself so um i have kind of a, a strange path that i'm taking right now i'm actually pursuing a dual career i am both a uh, photographer and a physician as a physician i work as a radiologist and that involves uh, sitting in a small space in a dark room looking at uh, black and white and grayscale images, trying to analyze what's wrong inside the human body. It's like um, trying to solve visual puzzles and establishing a diagnosis so that we can help cure um, whatever is plaguing the human body. When I'm not doing that, I pursue photography, which also is a visual realm, I, I guess you could say that. But my purpose in photography is completely different in that I aspire to generate images in wide open expansive spaces with a whole lot of color thrown in and it's uh, really an appreciation of the beauty of nature and um, it's between this yin and yang that i find my center of zen and uh, it's a nice balance between the two fields nice well that, that's kind of exciting it's funny i never really would have thought that there would have been so much sort of crossover between those those two careers, you know, like like a such a, a science based medical thing. But I guess yeah, really, really, you're kind of, it's like you're losing using Lightroom for one, or or you mm -hmm. know Photoshop for one, and whatever you would use for radiology on the other one. But you're, uh, you know, I guess uh, do you find a lot of crossover? Yeah, I, I do. You know, it's it's interesting because one aspect, right? Like radiology involves me being very disciplined in terms of how I analyze. Uh, an image. So the visual analysis that's involved in um, radiology is such that I need to function exactly like every other trained radiologist would. So there are certain rules you must follow, the same visual pathway that you would use for scanning, you would identify what's wrong. So everything is like very rigid and very um, goal oriented. Whereas when you go into photography, it's still visual analysis, but it's completely out of a free spirit, right? There are no set rules. All you're doing is trying to express yourself through the medium of photography. So you literally could turn to anything that appeals to you. You don't have to necessarily scan the entire landscape. You're not worried about missing anything. You're just trying to see what is it that you emotionally connect to and then try to tell a story about that visual element. So it's a very different approach. 
Um, it kind of draws upon the same skills because yes, you're looking for patterns, you're looking for changes in luminosity, you're looking for things that stand out, but the purpose behind each of those um, pursuits is completely different. So I, I really enjoy that. And they're both, both equally rewarding for me. Nice. And I guess, uh, how did you first like get into photography? You know, obviously I'm assuming you started that after you, you had been a physician for a while. How, what, what gave you the photo, the bug? So um, I, I actually uh, got married when I was very young, um, when I was 21, and I had my kids very early. So I actually uh, was nine months pregnant when I took my medical college admissions test and I started med school when my son was nine months old and my daughter was born between the third and fourth years of med school. So that meant we were poor because <laughs> I was still a student and um, with two kids. And so our vacations basically were all in in the outdoors, right? We couldn't afford hotels. So it was a good thing in that uh, our kids grew up basically in tents. That's what we would do. We'd go hiking, we would go exploring, everything was outdoors. And just because the kids were young and we were out there all the time, I started taking pictures to document our adventures and you know, just sharing them on Facebook. And then people were like, wow, they, these are really good pictures. So that's kind of what started it. Um, so when I originally ventured into photography, it was more with the family and more just for to document the experiences and share them with others. And it wasn't until the kids grew older and I started doing it more seriously that it transitioned from documentation to creative expression. So when I would say maybe for the past um, few years, like five or six years, it's been not just taking a picture of what's there, but taking a picture and then infusing it with my creativity, you know, rendering a mood or rendering a type of atmosphere and then um, taking it that way. Another fascinating thing that happened was um, since I was working in the hospital, I would walk uh, through the hallways of the hospital and I always felt like, you know, personally, I felt like I was healing if I was in the middle of nature. I found it to be an extremely therapeutic experience. And I'm sure you guys who hike and spend time in the outdoors totally get why we do it, right? Because, because it has such a positive effect on our well-being. And here we are in a hospital trying to heal our patients who are sick. But the ambience that we have was these whitewashed walls, fluorescent lights, and, you know, a very intimidating atmosphere. So to me, that seemed ironical. If we are trying to heal someone, wouldn't you want the ambience to be like it is outdoors in nature, you know, which, which has a therapeutic effect? Why do we have these sterile whitewashed walls? So I, I went to the um, people who are on the executive board of the hospital and I, um, you know, pitched this theory and I said, I think we should heal the mind uh, along with healing the body. And in order to heal the mind, you need to create an ambience of healing. You want to make people feel comfortable, not stressed. And one of the best way to do it would be to incorporate images of nature on the hospital walls. They liked that idea, but then they turned around and said, well, then you go get the pictures. <laughs> so um, anyway, I was outdoors. So I was like, why not? So I went out with the purpose of creating images that would have almost a form of visual therapy on those who would view them. 
and now my photography had a certain purpose. So um, yeah, I started generating those images, started submitting them to medical corporations. They um, were put up on the walls and people really started enjoying them. And I expected the patients to really like um, seeing images of nature, but what was even more rewarding was to be told by other physicians and nurses and all of the hospital staff that they enjoyed coming to work because now they could be surrounded by these beautiful images. So um, yeah, it's it's been a really rewarding journey. Like I'm just sort of like kind of in awe of the journey and like the combination of the the medical and your passion for photography and how you found the healing in both. It's pretty oh, amazing. It's thanks, nice. Averia. Thank you. And and you know, it's um it's very nice because like they will specifically ask me to do a cancer center, right? And originally, interestingly, when I first started submitting pictures, as a photographer, I would always chase sunrises and sunsets because that's dramatic light. And, um, you know, we love to see the clouds go all fury and, you know, the glorious colors of sunset. But when I brought them to the hospital, they, they made it very clear that a sunrise actually doesn't look different from a sunset. And for a person who is um, experiencing poor health and doesn't know if they're going to make it to tomorrow, seeing a sunset can be quite depressing, actually, because it symbolizes something else for them. And that taught me that our perspective of how we see things is largely dependent on the personal state of mind. And, and that made me realize that I cannot be dramatic in the hospital. You know, it's, we're not going for the wow factor uh, when generating images that we want to be healing. Instead, we are going for serenity. We're going for calmness. We're going for like green and blue colors, not red and orange, you know, the fury um, tones. So I had to adjust my photography um, for, for that purpose. And in doing so, I actually began, I'm, I'm sort of a more excitable person, I would say, but in forcing myself to slow down and consciously make the effort to generate images that have a healing effect, it kind of calmed me down too. And it um, established a deeper connection to nature and really um, slowing down, being in the moment and really enjoying the process. So I would say that I benefited personally as much, if not more from this journey uh, than those who are viewing those images and enjoying them. Uh, I've got a question for you, Sapna. So when you take one of these, when you go somewhere like Yosemite, for example, I understand you were just there recently. Um, how much time do you spend like setting up and how many shots do you take? And then what do you, what's your goal? Like if you're, you're successful, if you, if you come up with two or three great shots or what, what is sort of the objective there? I think um, every photographer goes through an evolutionary process where initially it's more about bagging the shots. You know, it's like, oh, did I get this? Did I get that? But when you have been shooting for a while, you realize that not getting a shot is not such a big deal anymore because you know you'll always go back. Um, so for me, having shot, I've, I've started shooting seriously since 2011, I would say. So, you know, over a period of 10 years, I don't feel any regret or sense of loss if I don't get a shot. Um, just the fact that I'm out there, that I'm enjoying nature is the reward. That, that, that picture is just the icing on the cake. The real reward is the time that I'm spending out there. And 
every day that I am in a dark, confined space, unable to step out or see the light, kind of reiterates how precious that time actually spent in nature is. You know, um, it's almost like you have to be deprived of something to understand its true value, if I'm making sense. And um, that, that going back and forth between a confined space, doing something scientific, and then jumping into the outdoors and doing something that's completely artistic kind of makes each of those pursuits that much more special. Um, so no, I don't have any preconceived notions of this is how many pictures I must get on this trip or this is the number of shots I need to take. I, literally, I feel the camera is an extension of my arm. It's, it's uh, at a subconscious level. And uh, I react to light as it presents itself and to visual elements as they present themselves. Sometimes I'll go on a trip and not come back with any pictures. And sometimes I'll go on a trip and come back with a whole bunch of them. Um, so it's whatever mother nature delivers, honestly, it's not in my control. The only thing I consciously strive is to savor every moment out there, irrespective of what the outcome may be in terms of productivity, um, as far as pictures go. So there is no pressure, really. I mean, I earn a decent living. Um, so it's not like, you know, I have to sell pictures or sell myself in photography. It's actually, I can just totally relax and enjoy the experience. So yeah, it's, um, I don't really have a set answer for that in terms of number of shots. And I'm pretty quick in terms of shooting though. I react quite quickly to light, I, I would like to say. Um, it comes quite naturally. So I don't feel stressed when doing that. I do get very, very <laughs> excited though. When I see good light, it just, it's so wonderful. Even if I'm not shooting, even I'm just hiking, um, I get excited. I mean, even for something like I'll be picking up my kid from school and bringing them home and I see the sunset and I just get so excited. I'm like, do you see it? Look at how beautiful the sunset colors are. And my daughter will turn to me and said, but mom, it sets every day, you know? <laughs> so it's like, why are you so excited? So it's almost like, I think um, you begin to have a deeper sense of appreciation, really. For, for the beauty that surrounds us. And that I think is a, a gift, you know, to, to be supremely happy just because you're looking at clouds in the sky, uh, that, that's a gift and I'm, I'm very thankful for that. That's a great perspective, yeah. I always kind of look at it like the, the thing that photography has the most common with is like fishing, right? Because sometimes you go out <laughs> and the fish are biting, you know, sometimes there's good light. Sometimes the right. light is terrible. <laughs> yeah. And if the light's terrible, I just, you know, early on I would shoot. Now I'm like, nah, you know, just whatever. If I'm right. not going to spend the time, you know, you know, fit, you know, in post finishing it, or I don't think it's going to be something worthy, you know, that I want to hang on my wall. I just kind of, I'll take an iPhone shot or a shot that I, you know, like a less whatever, but I don't tend to break out the, the good, the good gear for those kind of situations. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. And the opposite is true too. You know, I went, um, to the Arctic Circle to view the Aurora Borealis. I had never seen it before, the Northern Lights. And um, I got there, didn't get anything on the first day, didn't get anything on the second day. And finally, on the third day, we arrive at the Arctic Circle and, and within like 15 minutes or so, the Northern Lights begin and they just go from one end of the horizon to the other end, just like overwhelming, like a KP8 or something like that on the index. And everything, it's just dancing and this green, purple, pink, you name it, right? And 
it was so beautiful that I made a conscious decision to stop shooting. You know, I was like, I cannot confine this beauty to just the viewfinder, I can't. So I put my camera aside, I lay down on the ice and just stared at the sky and said, let it wash over me. You know, I'll, I'll like remember it when my memory. So I came back with like dinky shots and others might say that was kind of ridiculous, but it was one of the most beautiful experiences of my life. I think, I think it's important to acknowledge um, that it's about being present in the moment. It's not about bagging shots because in the end when you when I think when you look back on life it's the experiences you have had right it's in I mean at least that's my take on it <laughs> yeah Sapna um how do you decide where to shoot like do you have favorite places do you sort of have a bucket list of places you want to go or are there places that you love to go back to no matter how many times you've been like Talk about how you choose where to shoot. Um, I am very deeply inspired by what I see um, on on social media. I am inspired by so many artists. Um, you know, like, for example, I had no idea that a swamp can be beautiful. You know, I, I went to school in Florida and I lived by the swamp and I'd seen the Everglades, but I never realized that there is beauty even in those dark <laughs> places till I saw somebody else's art. And then I was like, oh my God, this is so beautiful. I need to go capture this. So uh, I am always open to inspiration from uh, wherever it comes from, uh, you know, like whether it's movies or whatever visual stimuli we receive, I'm always looking for beautiful spots. Um, and I love to travel, I love to visit places. Um, so yes, I have done quite a bit of traveling. I love to hike. Um, I like to experience the culture uh, on different continents. Having grown up in India and migrated to America and then having traveled quite a bit across the world, I feel quite comfortable actually in, in any culture. Um, I don't feel like a stranger. Um, and I like to spend time there and, and see what beautiful sites that they have in terms of nature and landscapes as well. So I'm constantly looking for new spots to shoot. Um, having said that though, my heart does belong to Yosemite, you know, just cause it's close to home and um, it's like my comfort food. So if I was ever feeling down or I just need to be by myself and be in a quiet space, then that's kind of like my Zen place, um, especially in winter. Uh, you know, I don't go there in summer, obviously, because of the crowds, but like at other times it's when it's not crowded and all you have to do is hike a little bit and the crowds are behind you, right? So there's plenty of space to just lose everyone there. Um, so I do like to go back to Yosemite time and again. I also like just being around home, all the, um, you know, green hills when we have the rain, just appreciating everything that's around us as well. So I guess it would, it's a mix. Sometimes it's international, sometimes it's local, sometimes it's a special um, forest or a special landscape, whether it's a swamp or whether it's, uh, you know, the redwood forest or something like that. I'm very drawn to forests. I absolutely love trees um, and I love mountains. So I don't shoot the ocean as much, um, but those two are my favorite subjects, forests and mountains. So I tend to seek them out. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you on Yosemite in winter. I, I, you know, sometimes I'll use it as a starting point for a backpacking trip or, or an exit for a backpacking trip. But I do try to kind of try to avoid the valley in summer because it, yeah. it is hard. <laughs> it, it is really hard when it's that crowded. 
Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, Yosemite in winter is just gosh, what a what a magical experience. Um, you know, I do storm watch. I, I did that last year. I did that, and I did get out there, and I tried it several times, and kept you know catching snowstorms, but uh, you know um, missing the visibility. You know, <laughs> you right, get up there, right. and you can't see yeah. ten feet yeah. in front of you. But I did finally kind of get a good one last year with that. Do you oh, watch awesome. storms and sort of like you know wait for the for the the fresh snow? I mean, do you do that yes, kind of stuff a lot? Yes, I absolutely love storms. I get super excited whenever there is bad weather anywhere. I love bad weather, like, you know, the classic bad weather, I think is just phenomenal because it's so dramatic, you know, um, and I make it a point every time there is a storm to try to head up to Yosemite if I can. And I feel disappointed when we have those rock falls and the roads close, but like I try to get there before the rocks fall, try to, you know, stay right outside the park and then go in um, the next morning right after a snowstorm. I try not to miss those special days. Uh, I love dramatic weather. Yeah. You, you've just been to Yosemite in this last week. You want to tell everyone what you were shooting there and what you were doing there? Yeah. So um, I went, um, I've been going every like three or four days um, to Yosemite just because they now have a permit system. So the number of people are restricted and that's been really, really nice. So I know that we were actually not supposed to travel beyond whatever 150 miles and this is probably like 180 miles for me so it's a little bit over what governor newsom would want us to do but you know i was so tempted because it was like i was cheating i had yosemite all to myself there were so few cars so few people so there were many many times during the covid and you know like even last year that i sneaked off to yosemite because i was like when will i ever get a chance to be in this place without others there <laughs> you know so i totally enjoyed it um and then the most recent visit was of course to catch the famous uh, horsetail falls um i think the very first time i shot it was probably like back in 2012 or 2013 um and uh i had seen like a really good show right away you know my very first time there shooting it i got a great show and i was standing to someone who was i think he was like 85 years old and he had been seeing it for 50 years um and i was amazed that you know it's something that mesmerizes people all their life it's not like oh it's on my bucket list i have seen it so it's done you're drawn to it just to go back and experience it you know and and when people say well aren't you upset with all the crowds I honestly am not because it's such a glorious thing right I mean if if we can tolerate crowds at stadiums and we can tolerate them at music festivals uh, we can tolerate them at all kinds of exhibitions why would you not be able to tolerate clouds uh, crowds when you're seeing one of the most spectacular phenomena in nature, right? And then to stand there and realize everyone else is as mesmerized as you are by this incredible natural phenomena. And when everybody starts clapping and cheering for something that was brought on by, you know, mother nature, that's a glorious feeling. So no, I, I don't feel irritated by crowds and I don't feel like I need to have the place to myself. I'm more than happy to share that experience with others and it doesn't lessen my joy at all. And um, I'm happy. I'm happy to see people are out there and really enjoying the show. So 
hopefully it'll make them care more for Yosemite, you know, and, and to conserve it and to protect it for future generations so they get to enjoy what we are enjoying today. And Sapna, can you tell a little bit more specifically about what this phenomenon is at Horsetail Falls? Sure. So what happens is that um, uh, when there is enough snowfall and then we have a decent uh, uh, snow cap uh, on the top of El Capitan, and then the sun shines on a sunny day we have this intermittent waterfall that forms which is called the horsetail falls and and water starts to come down the uh, face of el capitan the east buttress of el capitan and what happens is in february only for 10 days kind of like from say february 10th to about 20th um, give or take a couple of days the angle of the setting sun hits that waterfall at just the right angle um, and so it transforms it to the color of lava basically it looks like lava flowing down the mountain now for us to witness this so many things have to happen one we must have enough snowfall with a good solid snow cap on el cap second we should have sunlight and warm temperatures to melt that snow to create the waterfall third at sunset, there should be no clouds in the sky so that the sunlight can hit that waterfall at just the right angle. And when all of those conditions come together, in all its glory, you see what looks like lava flowing down the face of El Capitan. It's, it's the most beautiful thing um, to witness. It, it sounds totally amazing. I only wish I, I could share your your great outlook on dealing with crowds. I just can't. I really can't. That picture that went viral a couple of years ago from Horsetail Falls where it was like, you know, hundreds of people standing yeah. there in the same spot, you know, and it was like on all the photo blogs. I looked down, I'm like, yep, I'll never see it. Yeah. <laughs> I just yeah. can't do it. I, I wish I, I wish I could be that with you. Uh, but yeah, it, it does sound amazing. And I'm kind of, you know, I don't know, maybe someday I'll find somewhere else to see it. Yeah, and, and Sapna, this is one of those experiences that is very opportunistic. I mean, you can put yourself in the right place, but as you said, everything has to align just perfectly with the weather and everything else for, for this to happen. And there's so many places like that, like the Northern Lights. I, I know my mom and, and stepdad went to Iceland to hopefully see the Northern Lights but there it was overcast the entire time there's like there was nothing nothing to be seen and we've i think all of us have had those experiences where we've gone climbed up a mountain and instead of the view we were socked in we're standing in clouds and um and and how much you know i'm sure you've had that experience as well do you choose like i'm going to go back there and keep going until i get you know sort of that what i when i what i was looking for whether it be the light at you know Horsetail Falls or the amazing view from a mountain, um, I think if it had been if for, specifically for Horsetail Falls, it's easy for me to do right because it's nearby. There, I go to Yosemite all the time, so that that's a no-brainer. Of course, I would go back and and try to see it just because of its beauty and and try to get that shot. Um, for other things. There certainly have been places I have gotten to, you know, um, I, I went to China and hoped to catch something at, at this place called Guilin. It was all overcast and I couldn't get the shot I wanted. And the chance of me going back to China is pretty slim anytime in the near future. So, yeah, there will def definitely be some instances where it doesn't work out. But 
I, I, I think that's okay because I still really, really enjoyed my trip and, and there were so many glorious moments. And I am just, you know, such a small transient element in the cosmos, right? So to, to have even a few such moments play out in my favor, I'm quite happy and content. And they more than make up for those times when things don't quite align. So it's not so much about, um, you know, having to go back and absolutely get that shot for me. If I had a good time on the adventure, that's good. Looking through your, your feed on Flickr, um, I would say you've had more than a few of those <laughs> moments. You've had a lot of those moments. Yeah. Yeah, the secret to it is you don't share those moments where it didn't work out, remember? So you make it seem like you're always at the right place at the right time. Everybody's like, Sapna, how come you're at the right place at the right time? I'm like, because you haven't seen the 50 other times I was <laughs> the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> so, yeah. That's, that's the other channel. That's, you know, you need to have another page that just shows right. all of the, you know, the right place at the wrong time. Right. All those times I got skunked. Yes. <laughs> There, there, there was kind of a funny, like, viral thing that went out a, a, a little while ago. I don't know if a couple of years ago, where it was like the view in the opposite direction of famous yeah. things, like the Taj right, Mahal, right. you yeah. know, and it's this like river and like a bench, you know, all these really unspectacular views. And the whole idea of it was it was the, uh, you know, the opposite of what everyone takes a picture of. So there's, right, you know, right, might, that's might, funny. Might be fun. To, there probably is a hashtag for like, you know, bad, bad yeah. photo, of, you know, like, you know. Right, right. Your fail, I guess, photo fails or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, well, hey, so Sam, what? Let's change gears a little bit. Other than signing up for a class for you, which we'll talk a little bit more about later too, as well. What do you think if somebody say wants to like looks at your Instagram feed and says, "Hey, this is for me. I really want to get into photography." Like, what would be your advice to someone who, who's just starting out? Um, specifically into nature photography. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I would say that, you know, it's a great excuse to be out in nature. That's how I look at it, right? Um, I, I think whether you carry a camera or not, I would highly encourage people to step outdoors and, and enjoy nature. I think it has humongous benefit uh, on a personal level. It really enhances your life. And if you're not doing it on a frequent basis, uh, I think the quality of your life is deeply impacted. Um, so uh, that would be uh, my, my advice. I mean, taking up nature photography is great because it gives you an excuse to get out there. But honestly, if you said, no, I don't want to carry the camera. I just want to go hike. I say, go for it. You know, as long as you're spending time out there and you're not glued to some electronic gadget, I think the quality of your life is definitely going to be better. So I would strongly encourage them to do it, whatever it may be, you know, hiking, skiing, whatever, whatever floats your boat, just go do it. Just be outside. <laughs> Sapna, what would you recommend as a good like intro camera, like stepping out of the iPhone, not a point and shoot, but what would be your recommendation on a good camera and a good lens? Because I mean, so many of your pictures you know, have, have that big wide feeling to them. So what would you, rec what would you recommend for sort of an entry level? Um, so, camera? yeah, so I'm actually very, um, anti buying gear, you know, um, I like to take a minimalistic approach. So oftentimes I see people go out and buy the fanciest camera with a whole bunch of lenses and they don't really put it to use. So I would say like, even before you buy your first camera, if you have a phone, start taking pictures with that phone, you know, um, see if this is for, for you. 
you know, nowadays our, um, the iPhone takes great shots, right? Like even when I'm scouting out for my regular camera, I'm taking shots with my iPhone. And ironically, I think was it last year or the year before I had gone to Yosemite and I took multiple pictures, but I was using my iPhone to scout out the locations. And um, I think it was at Cathedral Beach, I forget. But um, I took a phone, I took a picture with my iPhone and my regular camera was not as good. You know, like my regular pictures were not as good. So when I came back and started processing the regular pictures, I just posted what I took from my iPhone and um, with the hashtag shot on iPhone. At that time, uh, Apple was running a competition for shot on iPhone pictures. So they selected that and then they bought it and then it got featured on the Apple page and I made enough money for another three Yosemite trips. <laughs> you know, so, so yeah. So, so it was like, um, I think the, it's not so much about the gear, but it's about finding that passion first. So I think even with a phone, if you are generating images and only when you say, oh, you know what, I would like to do this and my phone is not letting me do this. Like if you experience a limitation in your creative vision, then it's time to invest in a camera. Um, and I would say it's highly dependent on your budget. Go with a um, lower quality camera first, use it for a year and you know, make sure that's something you really want to stick with and then invest because a good camera will cost around $3,000. And then if you want a nice piece of glass, you're talking each lens will cost about $2,000. So you're looking at like, you know, by the time you are all set up with the full range of lenses and a decent camera, you're looking at something like eight to $10,000, which is a huge investment. And um, I think to get to that level, you have to first commit and say you really want to do it. So when I started out, I got the Nikon D90 uh, way back then. Um, it's just a small starter camera that I received as a birthday present from my husband uh, with whatever kit lens. He bought it at Costco. He's, he saw the package at Costco and he's like, hey, this is a good deal. She likes to take pictures, so let me get it to her. So that's what I started out with. And I fell in love with photography. And so then I ended up doing a whole year of extra shifts at the hospital to justify being able to buy my gear. And then when I fi finally earned enough, I went, walked into a camera store and bought my um, gear and my lenses. So I, I value how we spend the money when it comes to buying gear. So I would say, make sure you justify that purchase first. So make sure you find that passion first. Not, it shouldn't be the other way around. It shouldn't be like, oh, now I have this fancy camera. So let me go see what pictures I can take with it. I would say, do it the other way where you find your passion and say, I really enjoy being outdoors. I really enjoy taking these pictures. So now let me go buy a camera. So, yeah. I, I usually say to people, kind of do it the opposite way. I always recommend them to buy a better lens than camera when they start. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. You buy a $2,000 lens right. versus, you know, in a, you know, a thousand dollar camera, that's going to be much better than a, you know, right. the opposite than a $2,000 camera on a thousand dollar lens. Well, now there's some really good thousand dollar lenses, but right. you know, aftermarket, right. whatever. but I feel like the lens is so much more important to how, like, at least from the technical standpoint, how your pictures are going to look. Um, yeah. and, and it will last like the cameras kind of come and go, but your lenses will last, you know, sometimes three or four camera right. bodies. So it's a much better right. investment. Yeah. And also like used gear, right? Like yeah, you could yeah, start off absolutely. with used gear yeah. Um, and I would say like, you know, get maybe something that goes from at least, uh, you know, if you're shooting landscapes, you would need a wider 
um, lens, but anything that you have, like say from a 24 to 105, something like that, you could start out with something like that and see what uh, you have in terms of focal length available and you get used gear, you get used camera. Now cameras that are used are like at a fraction of the original cost, right? So if you wanted to buy like a used Nikon D850, you could get it for like a thousand bucks as opposed to the 3000. So that's a good place to start. It's a perfectly good camera. And the only reason the person is getting rid of it is because they want another fancier one, right? So I would say just do that. Um, and then get, like you said, get a really quality lens, get a quality camera, but buy something that's used and you, from a reliable seller and then go that, go that route, yeah. And take advantage of other people's gas. Gas is exactly. gear acquisition syndrome. Right, exactly. People, the new latest comes out and you know, yes. it's like they have a one-year-old camera they've barely used, but they want yeah. the newest one with yeah. more megapixels and more whatever. So you can get, you can get great deals on, uh, on very lightly used equipment. Don't buy yeah. my equipment because a lot of it has fallen off rocks and whatever. But other people's yeah. equipment, the ones that don't use it, you definitely. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I was just going to yeah. say, hey, Jason. But yeah. I won't. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I kill mine. I, I've killed several. So so you definitely don't want to. Yeah, buy, yeah. I, I tend to ones. abuse yeah. my gear too. Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's what it is for, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, I, I always wonder, like, some people, like, take care of your gear. I'm like, well, yeah. I'm using it. It's going right. to get wet. It's going to fall. Yeah. It's not like yeah. you people like you or me are taking pictures in like right. you know indoors and in studios. It's like you're outside. You got snow. You got you know you trying to shoot the northern lights. It's gonna be cold outside. Yeah, you know? exactly, exactly. Electric well, things don't like that. So yeah, yeah, and you know, ever since I saw that the iPhone 12 could be dunked in water, I've been dunking it in water like it's nobody's business. Yeah, <laughs> it goes underwater and takes gorgeous snaps. You know, and I love the. Uh, over under where like half the camera is submerged in water so you can see the rocks underneath and then half the camera is above the water so you can see the landscape above I can't do that with my regular DSLR because you know I put it in water and it's gone but this iPhone I can do it with so I'm thoroughly enjoying doing that nowadays are, are you a Sony did I see that are you a Sony ambassador are you shooting yeah. with Sony's oh you are okay yeah I thought uh, I'm not a Sony ambassador but oh. I shoot with Sony yes. yeah okay yeah that's yeah, I made the I, I switched over to that dark side a few years ago too. It's there. Yeah, well, I went great. from the DSLR to the mirrorless, and yeah. Sony was so far advanced yeah. in their mirrorless technology; it was a no-brainer. Yeah. So yeah. You really couldn't ignore it, you know. Right. Right. <laughs> All yeah. the cameras are good. I mean, it is funny too. Like you, you, you look online. God, people get so angry and so passionate about dumb things like right. you know Nikon or Canon or Sony, and what's better right. and what's not. And it's like oh, yeah. it's just just shoot, you know. Right. <laughs> They're all right. so good. They are I all know. really really good now. It's like just go out. And buy one and shoot and enjoy yeah, it then you're yeah. missing the point if you're yeah and actually i try to teach that a lot i think yeah. there is a part of our but i think it's also a sort of an innate nature of people like i see people who are more like engineering oriented they like the technical aspects of sure. their you know they like to analyze what focus um where the focus focus is the sharpest in a lens or like you know stuff like that and and they go into like the nuances of gear to like extreme detail i don't do that and um, i try to teach that and say if you do that if you devote that much of your brain capacity to the engineering aspects of it it might compromise the aesthetic uh, part of the brain because you know this is after all an art form <laughs> and uh, you kind of have to be a little bit relaxed and free-flowing and you know, not so regimented um, and worry about the gear as much. It should just, you know, it should just be more natural, I feel. 
Yeah. I'm sure because I do enjoy like nerding out. So I get that people like nerding out on the technical yeah, stuff. Yeah. And there's yeah. part of me like, but I also, it's like when you start using it as like, like almost right. like a tribal thing or something to right. like, you right. know, yeah. I don't know. That's, that's when I, I, I get lost. I'm like, what do you care? <laughs> you know, it's a brand, you know, they're selling <laughs> know, you something. Yeah. Uh, you right. Know. Right. You know, take that energy and put it into editing a photo instead of yeah. you know, writing a nasty email to, right. you know, a camera right. reviewer that doesn't like the camera you bought or something, you know? Yeah, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> and, and that's actually an interesting point Sapna how how much time do you spend editing the photos that you do take is that do you spend a lot of time just sort of on the computer and working on them just because I know that's a, that's an art in itself as well yeah I actually do tell people that I photograph because I cannot paint you know um, I think that um, it's almost like an equal part you know the amount of time you spend in the field um, in image acquisition and the amount of time you spend in post-processing. Now, each image is idiosyncratic, right? Some, like say, horsetail falls, it is what it is. There is nothing to add, nothing to subtract. It's just this phenomena you document and end of that. I mean, I literally did absolutely nothing to it. I pointed my camera and it's also one of like the easiest shots to get. You know, um, I'm standing there in the meadow and I'm thinking of, oh, my God, how did Gail and Raoul see this? What must he have felt? What did you know what happened when the Native Americans saw it before him? How did they feel? So like my mind is dwelling on that. You just point it up there. You take it. It's a very single base, simple, basic exposure. Even, you know, the most amateur photographer will nail it. And then there is nothing to it in terms of post-processing. There is no real mood to render or anything. You could just pick, pick which phase of the firefalls you want to show, you know, the bright one or the darker one when it turns to the color of red, but that's about it. So that one didn't take much time at all to post-process, but then there are others, especially like my wildflower shots. Those require a ton of effort, both in the field and in post-processing because there is wind, you know, like the KLLE shot. That's a, that's a difficult one to get because in that valley of flowers, there are as many people as flowers, right? So you're trying to get a composition without, you know, sort of looking like you're hogging the space to yourself. You're trying to enjoy that space with others. So you have to be mindful of their enjoyment as well. And you, you cannot really ask someone not to step into your frame or get angry because you are set up and they're stepping into your frame. They have every right to do so. Um, so that takes a lot more effort, a lot more patience. Um, I have to get the composition right. I have to get the light right. I have to keep shooting as people move because then I can remove them when I blend the final images. If I get wind, I have to wait till the wind subsides. And then I have to wait for the right backlit action on the flowers. So it's a very complex shot. And then I have to focus at different levels because some of the flowers are extremely close to me and some are far away. So I'm taking multiple shots for exposure, multiple shots for focus bracketing, multiple shots because people are walking through the frame. Then that becomes a very prolonged post-processing session because each of those images has a piece that needs to be put together so it's like putting together a puzzle and I have to combine multiple images to get that final image that could take several hours um, to go through and then some images I take and I'm not necessarily trying to document what's there but I I try to do what's uh, what I call a visual story where I'll shoot a sunset um, you know when the light is say on the foreground rocks and casts a long shadow 
then the light moves to the mid-ground and maybe the flowers are backlit or something. And then the light moves to the mountain in the distance and, you know, that becomes red. And then the sun sets with a nice little sun star and then maybe the clouds light up. So during that period, whatever the two-hour period that I was observing the sunset, so many things happened as the light moved across the landscape. And I shot all of those things. But when I combined the image, it will be a culmination of all the drama in one shot, right? So then that's called a time blend, where my composition doesn't change, but the luminosity of each visual element is captured in such a way that you see everything at its perfect moment in light, which never really happened in one instant. But you get to uh, see that in the photograph. And, and I think that is a beautiful way of telling a story, you know, of how light transition through. So that images like that, which are uh, multiple exposures that require blending, uh, will take hours of um, hours of post-processing. And, you know, um, there's also this thing called visual subjectivity, where when you're working on something for too long, you lose a perspective of um, being able to appreciate the colors. I don't know why that happens, but it happens. And then you don't realize that your reds are too red or something is off. Um, so I like to sleep on my images so I don't push them out on the day I process them. Like I don't post them anywhere. I get up the next day and I'm like, what was I high? What the heck was I thinking? It looks horrendous, you know. But like before I went to sleep, I thought I was the bomb, you know. Um, so it's interesting how our... Uh, how subjective our visual appreciation of something is if you stare at it for too long. So I have to be careful about that too. Yeah, often you literally can't see the forest through the trees. You know, you, yeah. you're like yeah. focused on this one little part of the image, you yeah. know, and then you <laughs> pull back to see the whole thing and you're like, oh my gosh, what have I done? It's a hard thing. I, I do always find it funny. I, I often wonder if people know like how many like exposures or just like how many pictures there are in one picture. You know what I mean? Right, like, right. Tw oh, sometimes yeah. 20 plus and, and that's, I, I mean, I don't know what the most you would use is, but I'm on the low, low end of that. Some of these guys are doing, you know, 50, 60 exposures and some of those crazy, more, oh, more yeah. sort of heightened ones. I'm not necessarily, they're nice to look at, but I'm not really my style, but it is kind of, it is crazy. I mean, do you, I, I guess, do you want to maybe just kind of just talk about like, say if someone wanted to go into YouTube and learn more about what you're talking about, like, do you want to just give a quick description of say focus stacking and bracketing and that kind of thing? So, so our listeners can, you know, maybe if they want to try it. Get a, get a sense of it? Um, sure. So um, bracketing exposures is what we do when we look at a landscape and it has a very high dynamic range. What does that mean? It means that the shadows are really, really dark and the highlights, the brighter spots in the um, image, are very, very bright. So the camera, unfortunately, doesn't have as great a dynamic range uh, as our eyes do sometimes. And so, you know, it depends also on the quality of the camera. Nowadays, of course, with um, the more expensive cameras, they have excellent uh, dynamic range. So with a single exposure, you can capture all the details in the dark shadows, as well as all the details in the highlights. But you would want to what's called bracket exposures, which is like exposed at different um, shutter speeds. Um, when you have too much of a dynamic range um, and that's the exposure blending so you take pictures which are specifically um, focused on achieving shadow detail and then pictures that are specifically focused on achieving highlight detail and then you try to blend everything so you have an image where no detail is lost whether it's shadows or highlights 
As far as focus stacking goes, when you have a um, landscape before you where you have interesting elements in the foreground, um, but you also want to have quite sharp focus on your midground, and then you also want to have some, you know, really good clarity for the background, say in the distant mountains or something, then what you do is basically move your focus point and, and generate multiple exposures where once you'll focus on the foreground, then you'll move it to the midground, and then you'll move it to the background and then combine all of them. So it looks like a sharper image. I do caution people uh, about doing that too much. You don't want everything to be super sharp. And the reason why I say that is one of the ways you can um, convey a 3D feeling in a 2D image is by conveying that sense of depth. So if you, um, next time you look at uh, uh, mountains far away, uh, pay attention to it, you'll notice that what you're seeing in the foreground, objects that are closer to you are much sharper in focus than the distant mountains. And that's what conveys the sense of depth for you. Your mind is telling you that those mountains are far away from me because they're not sharply focused. If you make everything sharply focused, you basically deprive yourself of that feeling of depth. So you don't want to overdo it. Um, you have to be cautious when you, when you focus stack, but not to lose that sense of depth. Um, but it does help to add drama to the distant mountains to have a little bit more clarity on there. So that's what that's used for. And then, like I said before, a time blend is when you shoot through different um, time periods and then you blend it in just to tell a story. For example, you could do a blue R shot to show the details of, say, like a waterfall, McWay Falls, Big Sur. You would shoot it during blue R and catch, you know, maybe the setting, uh, the, the little bit of light that's still left on the waterfall. And then when it's completely dark and you get the Milky Way and you shoot the Milky Way, the composition hasn't really changed, but now you're exposing for the Milky Way. So now you have a time blend where we saw the waterfall and we saw the Milky Way. And if you can aesthetically blend the two, it'll basically look like maybe you're looking at the falls in the moonlight and that is the Milky Way on top. So, so stuff like that. There is a lot of um, creative liberty because photographs are visual stories. And the way you include visual elements is like you're selecting your words. You know, what, what you tend to include, what you tend to exclude is how you set the tone of your story, how you add drama. And um, so it's a very interesting um, way to express yourself creatively. And honestly, there's no limit to what you can do and what kind of visual stories you can generate. Yeah, I think I'm the oldest one on the podcast tonight. So I'll just bring this up. I, I, the, the first time that I through hiked the John Muir Trail was in 1980. And I carried a um, uh, an SLR. It was a Konica, you know, 35 millimeter SLR. And I had, like you say, I had to be very deliberate. I had to be very intentional. I had a, a fixed number of rolls of film that I had brought with me on that trip. And I had to, you know, manage like, well, this is this is beautiful. This is beautiful. This is beautiful also. And but I, but I'm not going to take a picture because I think there's going to be something even more beautiful a little bit later. <laughs> and um, and you have to really be uh, thoughtful of each shot you take. You know, you want to you don't want to just waste those shots. And I think that's something that we've lost with the digital technology. I mean, it's so easy to just shoot, shoot, shoot. Yeah. And, and, and you know, you also bring up a very important point that, uh, you know, I have always said this that uh, to my students that 
it's it's like diet, right? Like we we become the food we eat. Um, we also become the person that we uh, fill our mind with in terms of visual stimuli. So if we surround ourselves with images that are substandard, then our art also becomes substandard. So I think it's very important every day to have a healthy diet of images that inspire you, you know, to receive that visual stimulation constantly. And the reason I bring that up is once you have that visual database and once like your diet is completely based on inspiring images, when you look at a landscape, you'll stop because it may not, it may not have the qualities that you've sought out in those inspirational images and then you'll slow down and then it'll become more deliberate. So I encourage people to constantly consume images, like feed it to your brain images that really inspire you and remove yourself from images that are substandard. So don't like follow accounts that are substandard just to get featured or whatever, you know, like, or if you follow them, don't even like dwell upon them, like try to get through them as quickly as possible. You don't want those images in your brain. Um, I, I think it's very important to do that. And also when you're hiking and you're saying, oh, that's beautiful. Um, I think it's important to realize that there are things that are beautiful and then there are things that are photographable. <laughs> Not everything that's beautiful is photographable. And that um, uh, being able to discern that and make the wise choice is important, I think, to generating images. I tend to see a lot of stuff that's very beautiful when I'm hiking and I consciously tell myself, nope, but I cannot generate an image that would have an emotional impact. I just have to enjoy it in the moment. Yeah, I, I generally only shoot. I hate to be admit, I only shoot generally during magic hour or really early. Like if I'm on a trip that's specifically for photo, I'll get up at, you know, five or whatever to catch the sunrise uh, and then the sunsets. But I, I tend to not shoot all that much or I use my phone. I do more snapshot yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. But but definitely if the, the light isn't there, I, I, I tend to not really. I just don't have I'd rather enjoy the moment than than, you know, focus on trying to get a picture that I already know is, is not going to be, you know, what I want or what I what I aim for. <laughs> yeah, I think interesting light is very, very important. Unless, of course, there's like, you know, it's a cloudy day and there's interesting subjects or like there is a storm clearing or something like sure. that. And of course, yeah. Yeah, obviously, if it's moody or you have cool right, sky, right. even blue skies right. with clouds can be really spec during the day can <laughs> yeah. be spectacular. But, but yeah. you know, that's a, that's a different kind of scenario. Yeah. You know, than <laughs> I know. It's so funny, right? How our perspective changes. I had some visitors uh, come um, from another state and they had gone to the beach and they came back and they said the sunset was so beautiful. So my question to them was, really, were there clouds? And they said, no, there wasn't a cloud in the sky. And I was like, what? <laughs> how is that beautiful? And then I realized, oh, they don't care for the pictures, you know? So it's so funny how we, uh, how we seek out dramatic light and others are like blue skies are so beautiful. <laughs> no, I, yeah, and like, you know, I, I remember it was funny you know, I did a documentary when we did the on the John Muir Trail years ago, and we had like, we we went from like rain where we couldn't see anything to just blue skies, and we're like, ah, oh, we we can't get, you know what I mean? Yeah. We, you want the medium because if it's all blue, then it's mm -hmm. kind of right. it's just a little bland. But if you don't have any visibility, then you're not you know you're not right, shooting. Right. So it is it's like a such a weird middle ground or just weird conditions that work, and you know, and oftentimes things that are photogenic aren't as pretty as things that aren't. Like you said earlier when you were talking about it, you right. know, and it's just I guess the more you shoot, the more you kind of learn, 
You mm-hmm. self-edit, you know, prior to, I mean, taking those snapshots. <laughs> Sapna, um, you mentioned earlier something about students. Do you want to talk a little bit about your teaching that you do and your photography workshops? Yeah. Um, so I, um, I really enjoy teaching. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, it's also another way to, I think, share the joy of what I'm experiencing, right? And there is something very rewarding when you see somebody get super excited about a shot. It's like I relive that experience when I used to feel the same way. Because <laughs> I have to admit that uh, now when I go to tunnel view, I obviously won't take my camera out unless the light is really epic, right? Because I've shot it, what, like hundreds of times I've been there and I already have it in like different moods. So unless I'm emotionally connecting to a visual element or, or like there is a specific quality of light, I wouldn't take my camera out and shoot. I would just stand there and enjoy the scene. But then like I see, um, like when I take my students, they are super excited just to be there. It blows their mind. And through their eyes, I realize how magical that place is. You know, even in that flat light, even if something exciting isn't happening, it's like I relive that time when I first came upon it. And I know, I know that feeling again. Um, so I really enjoy teaching. I also enjoy it when, you know, like, like a light goes off in their mind when they see something and they realize that composition works. Um, it's basically like you relive all those experiences that you went through, I think, when you're teaching. Um, so I find that very, very rewarding. I try to um, usually do small group sessions. Um, I tend to be very uh, hands-on with my teaching and I'm like checking every composition and uh, trying to inculcate good habits when it comes to image um, acquisition and then also the post-processing. So it's very intense the way I teach. Um, and of course, once they find their individual style and they get more comfortable with it, then um, I would step back and say, okay, let your creativity flow. But if they're just starting out, then yeah, I'm much more hands-on um, and I enjoy that process. So I do both. Um, uh, most of the workshops I do are now like private. So it's like one to two people. I have just launched um, group workshops. I had done them previously in India and in China, um, but this is the first year um, that I am actually trying to do multiple group workshops in multiple countries. So I have some, I have one set up in uh, Indonesia, Bali and Java in July. And then I have like a whole slew like Iceland, um, Africa, the Cyprus swamps, um, various locations. And each of those places I hope to take like four or five people, maximum of eight. And hopefully with another guide as well um, to take care of the logistics and um, and try to teach photography that way. But I want people to understand that it's not just about bagging the pictures. I want them to enjoy the adventure. I want them to basically transform themselves into the person that gets excited just to be out there. You know, like if you if you can nail that, if you begin to enjoy just the act of going out to shoot, and if you enjoy waiting for the right light, waiting for the right moment and observing how the light changes, if you get happy doing that, then you're a winner. In, in my book, you're a winner. Because that means every time you go out, you're going to come back happy, irrespective of whether you nail that shot or not. Of course, we'll make every attempt to nail that shot, but I think it's more important to learn to enjoy the journey 
um, and, and that's what I try to inculcate. So the places we go to are, of course, insanely beautiful. Um, and, and the adventures, um, experiencing new cultures, um, and, you know, usually go to places that are relatively safe, everything, the logistics are worked out. Um, and yeah, hopefully they will have the trip of a lifetime and come back uh, being better photographers. And, and even if they don't necessarily have, you know, a whole bunch of portfolio worthy shots, they will definitely have acquired the skills to you know uh, get the shot subsequently so it's not so much about catching the fish as in learning how to fish <laughs> if i can put it that way um, so that that's what they are focused on and um, it's more about finding your individual creative style finding a way to express yourself through the medium of photography and above all to create meaningful images for yourself you know at the end of the day those images must mean something for you so that, that's the purpose behind the workshops. Yeah, and uh, Jason, I think, introduced the, the fishing metaphor, but uh, there's a, a bumper sticker that's I've seen before that says, the worst day fishing is better than the best day in the office. Yes. And I think that applies here too, right? <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. And, and that's the thing, right? Like if, if you get excited about being out there, then, then you wouldn't feel so bummed out about not scoring on any given day, so... Yeah, it's funny. I think our Wonderland trip, you know, it's two things. This brings up sort of two things: the notion of not shooting, and then how great the underwater iPhones are. I think um, I lugged quite a bit of heavy camera, you know, tripod, an A7R2, like an A6500, and a, several lenses the whole way around that trail. You know, all Jeff brought was his iPhone, and I think my favorite shot is one that he got of all of us, like a selfie. He got of us in a lake because he could bring that in the water, you know, and I just didn't really have, there wasn't really great shooting conditions on that trip. So I got some nice shots, but it was, you know, we had zero visibility. We had, you know, no clouds, you know, so it was kind of yeah. a little bit yeah. of a bust on the photo thing, you know, but. Right, you know, right. Yeah. And that image probably resonated with you because yeah. it was like, you know, representative of the quintessential experience, right? Like, so, sure. yeah, yeah, it was so meaningful that, that image. Yeah. And, and there were some nice shots, but that, that's my favorite. My favorite shot of the trip is the one Jeff took. And obviously there's some sentimental stuff in that too, but you know. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I wish they made A7R4s waterproof without a housing, without a heavy expense. Right, thing yeah, like really. I would love that. <laughs> but they don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe they will in the future, but it'll have a big uh, price tag, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, oh well, it has a big price tag already. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just have to say I'm incredibly inspired by it. Not, I mean, I was inspired by your work when I saw it, like your photos on Instagram, but just talking to you just brings so much more meaning to your photography, so much more meaning to your photography and who you are as a photographer. And I just really appreciate you sharing um, your thoughts and your feelings and sort of your philosophies behind the photography. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> well, so, so Sapna, if someone wants to, you know, do one of your workshops, you know, or follow you on Instagram, what's, where can they find you? How can they, how can they sign up? Um, I think I, I check my um, Instagram regularly so they can just d d DM me on Instagram or DM me on Facebook. Pretty easy to find. My website is a work under progress and um, it should be launched soon, but that soon is very relative. <laughs> so I hopefully it'll come through. But for now, um, um, the Instagram account also has links to like the workshops and stuff. So 
I think just um, messaging me on there would probably be the best bet. I'm hoping the website, which will be sapnareddy.com, will be launched probably within the next 10 days or so. But, you know, I don't unless there is something else that needs to be worked out. So. So it'll probably well, hopefully it'll be out when this 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 uh, is released. So this is about two three weeks out. So yeah, oh yeah, I think so. Yeah. So you, hopefully, although yeah, I kept I saying mine was my my website was a week away for six years. Right. So I, don't know I, I know. I know. That's the thing. I don't know thing. if I believe you because I've been exactly right. where you are right now. Right. Right. <laughs> I know. And like I keep throwing it to the website builder, and he's like, "That looks exciting," and "This looks exciting," yeah. and then it's been going on for a year. So I have stopped telling people when it's coming out anymore. Yeah. <laughs> And, and if someone wants to get their spleen checked out, how how do they find you? You know, doctor, doctor. Oh, I work for Kaiser, oh, so okay. that's easy. All right, All right. cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been I, honestly for years I've been wanting to talk to you because I've been a fan for so long. Oh, and so Thanks sweet. for coming on and talking to us. It was everything I'd hoped it to be, and and just keep on doing what you're doing because it's fantastic. Thank you so yeah, much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that's going to do it for us. Please make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media on Instagram at almost there underscore AP or the almost there adventure podcast on Facebook. You can find Severia at adventure us women. That's adventure us women, Jeff at the SoCal hiker or me at the Muir project. Our title track almost there is performed by Opus Orange and is provided courtesy of Emoto. For more on this episode and all of our others, make sure to check out the show notes on our website, almostthereadventurepodcast.com. Next time on our final of four episodes in March celebrating women in the outdoors, we talk to Ashley Winchester, who as of this recording has 39 FKTs, so you're not going to want to miss it. As always, thanks for listening.